from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco. Welcome to the Coco Crew Podcast. A delicious adventure into the world of retro computing news and information. Featuring the Tandy Color Computer. Got your Coco 3 yet? Coco. All right. Welcome, Coco Cruisers and Coco Maniacs, <laughs> whatever other kind of Coco people we have out there. You're listening to episode 80 of the Coco Crew podcast. Woohoo! Um, let's see. I'm John, John Linville. And, of course, I'm joined here by my regular set of co-hosts. So we've got uh, Neil Blanchard. Hello, Neil. Hello, John. And everyone listening. Mike Rowan. Hello, Mike. Coco Cruisers Assemble. <laughs> and Mr. Boise Pete. Hello, Boise. Coco Forever. All right. Doing well. Doing well. Everything's going pretty good. It's almost the end of January. Coco Fest is, uh, uh, I said three months. Is that right? Maybe it's more like four months. Four months away, I guess, right? Handy assembly coming up at the uh, end of um, September, so that'll be what uh, eight months away. Not not quite this normal separation, but um, you know we've had some schedule changes over the past couple of years that we're still accounting for. <laughs> we're all looking forward to that. I think we're all going to meet up at Coco Fest. Well, uh, I guess Neil's still stranded. Hopefully things will clear up by Coco Fest, but we'll see. All right. Well, what about what's everyone doing? Anyone working on some cocoa stuff? Over the um, Christmas break, I finally got back into uh, took a little time to open up KiCad and work on a couple of PCB layout related projects that I've kind of had in mind for a while. Well, one that I'm not quite ready to talk about, and one that um, I kind of announced or what was more of a throwaway, but uh, I did a, a little joystick tester board that. Uh, Let's you plug in a joystick and make uh, some lights go on and off with the button presses and the joystick movements. Some people ask, why, why not just plug it into a cocoa to test? I said, well, that's fine if you got your cocoa and a monitor and <laughs> want to load up some software. But if you just want to plug in the joystick and see if it works, that's, that's the idea here. Got uh, some other stuff going, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll probably leave that for the future too. But, you sold out a block down. Are you working on the next thing yet? Yeah, I finished up uh, over the holidays the block down uh, cartridges. So uh, there's a, yeah. only a couple left, so it was pretty uh, successful. Good to see that. Cool. Awesome. I've been working on uh, ramping up on the Turbo 9 stuff for the semester, so that's sort of Cocoa related. Yeah, that's cool. I've been playing block cool. down. Well, Playing block now. Well, that's a good. Yeah. That's cocoa, right? That's uh, good. Absolutely. <laughs> How about acquisitions? Did you got anything uh, recently, or uh, picked up any had any discoveries down at the the throw or anything like that? I got blocked down. <laughs> sure. Okay. Well, I bought a lot of little parts for uh, building the joystick testers. I was thinking that joystick tester would come in hand for uh, when I built Gamesters. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it might. Um... What are your production plans on that? Or is, is, is it going to be? Are you going to make that available as a kit, or you can sell units, or what's the plan? 
Well, I was just leaning towards just putting together some kits. There's not a lot of much of anything. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it shouldn't be a very high dollar item. Um, so, I mean, it'll probably be a DIY kit, um, you know, solder stuff on a board. Not 100% settled at this point, but I don't know what the market will really be like for that. I think there's probably a handful of people that would want one just because, well, why not, right? Anything you reduce, there'll be somebody who wants one. <laughs> I don't predict uh, hordes of Cocoas trying to beat down my door for them, but you never know, I guess. I figured I'd put together a few kits and um, probably have it uh, at Cocoa Fest. We'll see, and then maybe by Tandy Assembly, uh, it'll be more clear what the market is. So, so maybe there'll be kids at Tandy Assembly, or maybe I'll have gone full out into production and have boxes and everything by then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be uh, it'd be a fun little kit for people to assemble. So, oh, for sure, that's that's very cool. So, anyway, I did do a video showed it working with a the prototype and um, the uh, the board. I kind of chose some bad prints for a couple of things uh, that uh, they, you know, you can assemble the board, but it's it's not as quite as easy or nice as it ought to be. So I have a respin of the board. The biggest difference of the respin of the board from versus what's in the video is in the video I just had uh, wires to connect between the the joystick connector and the uh, and the board itself. Um, and uh, ironically, of course, I actually had a PCB mount <laughs> joystick connector, but then it soldered wires to to it and you know, put those to the board. Anyway, um, the the biggest part of the respin is I've actually got the layout is for a, a PCB mount joystick connector. But I mean, it's cool. You pop in a nine volt battery, and so it's it has its own. It has a switch, and um, so kind of cute, kind of fun. I don't know how useful it really is, but, you know, <laughs> like I said, it kind of was something fun to do, and uh, not a lot of effort. So, why don't we call this an introduction and uh, take a break, and then we'll be back with some announcements. New from ENG Systems Laboratories, the keyboard beeper cartridge. It plugs right into your color computer's expansion port, but still allows you to connect any other device using the inline transparent expansion port. The cartridge has an onboard speaker. Hear a beep as any key is pressed, significantly reducing typing errors. LED power indicators monitor the 5-volt, plus 12-volt, and minus 12-volt power supplies. Flip a switch to enable or disable the cartridge detect line. Power up into basic or a game pack. Best of all, it has an easily accessible reset switch right on the cartridge pack. No more feeling around blindly behind the computer trying to find the reset switch. All of these features and no modifications to your color computer are required. The keyboard beeper cartridge is just $59.95 plus postage and handling. Another great product from ENG Systems Laboratories, Springfield, Virginia. All right, Coco Cruisers, welcome back. And now it's time for some announcements. As we mentioned earlier, you are listening to the Coco Crew Podcast. We are available on Twitter with a Twitter handle of at Coco Crew Podcast. That's at sign C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W-P-O-D-C-S-C. If you are prone to sending tweets, feel free to tweet at us. We may tweet back to you. We, of course, also are available on Facebook with a separate group here called The Coco Crew Podcast. That's four separate words. 
Let's see, we are a podcast, so along with the RSS feed that's available at cococrew.org, if you're not quite that DIY with your podcasting, then uh, we are available through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and if you prefer to stream, well, then we're available with streaming on Spotify, on Stitcher, and through TuneIn. For some time, we have been making a version of the podcast on YouTube. It's uh, basically just the audio podcast, a simple transformation um, to uh, some, some mostly still still frame video with the addition of uh, the animation of a, our voice um, waveform on top. If you're hearing impaired, or if uh, English is a second language for you, or otherwise if you have trouble understanding us um, due to, I don't know, our accents or whatever else, uh, YouTube does pretty well with uh, subtitles. So you can uh, read instead of listening to <laughs> any part hard to understand. So anyway, there's a link in the show notes to uh, the playlist on YouTube. Let's see, we are a member of the Throwback Network. The Throwback Network is a list of retro-themed podcasts, mostly centered around um, well, 80s culture as well as uh, gaming and, and retro-computing, retro-gaming. If you're all caught up on uh, the Coca-Cola podcast and looking for something else to listen to, then we recommend that you check out the Throwback Network. Similarly, uh, if you're all caught up want to look for another podcast, then you should check out the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. The podcasts listed there are all related to retro computing and retro gaming. Check it out, the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. Audio for the Coco Crew Podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears, where you will get uh, unlimited bandwidth and uh, your audio on your terms. You need to host audio on the internet, uh, whether it be for your home podcast or church or your social club or whatever. We recommend that you check out for years. <laughs> All right, if you want to reach out to any of the hosts of the Coco Group podcast, uh, we have some email addresses available. Show S H O W at cococrew.org at sign C O C O C R E W dot O R G podcast P O D C A S T at cococrew.org. And feedback, F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K, at cococrew.org. So send email to any of those addresses. It'll reach all the hosts. So if you want to tip us off your greatest new project or some other piece of retro news, if you want to ask a question or, you know, tell us what a good job we've done or tell us what a bad job we've done, feel free to reach out. We always love to hear from you. And if you want to reach out to just one of us specifically for whatever reason, then I am available as John, J-O-H-N.org. Neil is available as Neil, N-E-I-L-A-V-R-U.org. Mike is available as Mike, M-I-K-H-A-D-C-O-R-U.org. And Boise is available as Boise, B-O-I-S-Y, at C-O-R-U.org. So that's the end of our kind of fixed announcements. Uh, now we've got a few events in real life that we think might be of interest to our listeners. Coming up April 22nd through the 24th, we have Vintage Computer Festival East. BCF East 2022 will be an in-person show, still scheduled for three days. This year's theme, Women in Computing, Computers for the Masses. So it's a um, cool event up in uh, Wall, New Jersey. At uh, InfoH Science Center, 
which is an old Army post with some history related to Marconi or radio such things. <laughs> so it's um, got some nice museum sort of stuff there. Anyway, if you're up in the um, northeast part of the United States, sort of the, the not quite New York, we're closer to, to the New York City area. Uh, if you're going to be up there in, in late April, you know, check out the Vintage Computer Festival East. April 29th through May 1st, 2022, we have the Midwest Gaming Classic. This will be held at the Wisconsin Center, Wisconsin Avenue in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Midwest Gaming Classic is a trade show featuring 150,000 plus square feet of retro and modern home video game consoles, pinball machines, arcade video games, tabletop RPG computers, tabletop board games, crane games, collectible card games, air hockey, and that's just the start. Ron Clown always tells us this is a great event. Uh, if you're in the uh, northern part of the Midwest in um, late April or early May, we recommend that you check out the Milwaukee Gaming Classic. So coming up 14th through the 15th, so my 14th and 15th days, uh, we've got the uh, 2022 edition of the last Chicago Coca Fest. Uh, this will be held at the Holiday Inn, Elk Grove Village, Illinois. In Elk Grove Village, Illinois. <laughs> Great event for cocoa stuff. See lots of cocoa people, various cocoa groups uh, meet up and, uh, and share the love of cocoa there in uh, Elk Grove Village, Illinois, May 14th and 15th, 2022. All right. Coming up by 15th through the 17th, we've got the Southern Fried Gaming Expo. This will be held in Atlanta, Georgia at the Marriott Re- Renaissance Waverly. Pretty cool event. The Southern Fried Gaming Expo features more than 250 arcade and pinball machines, dozens of new and retro console systems, a massive tabletop library, exciting panel sessions, guest speakers, and so much more. So, very cool if you're going to be um, in the southern part of the states in uh, July, mid-July of 2022. We recommend you get to Atlanta and check out the Southern Fried Gaming Expo. All right, coming up July 19th through the 24th, Kansas Fest, the Apple II event. If you're into Apple II stuff, this is the event where they, they for years, um, met in the Kansas City, Missouri, and, and uh, had rooms in a college dorm and hung out and talked to Apple II all day. Cool event. Uh, it says Apple, but, uh, you know, Apple II stuff will wash off. <laughs> so... If you're available in mid to late July, looking for a retro event, we recommend you check out Kansas Fest. Next on the list, VCF West, August 6th through the 7th of 2022, held at the Computer History Museum, Mountain View, California. Never been, it was a great event. I'm sure it is. VCF West. That brings us now to the biggest baddest, awesomest <laughs> event in the Coco calendar. Um, and uh, even the uh, TRS-80, um, the Z80 line calendar as well. The, talking, of course, about Andy Assembly. Andy Assembly will be held September 30th through October 2nd, 2022. Andy Assembly, the big event in the Coco world. It's an awesome event. Lots of good camaraderie, but not only Coco, also the um, Z80 folks and uh, some of the pocket computer folks, 100 folks, 
even some Tandy 1000 folks. It's a cool event held in Springfield, Ohio. Very exciting stuff. With that, why don't we take another little break and then we'll be back with some news. You're coming in loud and clear. Must be a realistic CB radio. 10 4, good buddy. It's my new 40 channel realistic. Radio Shack's got it on sale right now for only $79. I saved 60 bucks. That realistic sure is a good brand. 10 4 on that. You can depend on realistic. Where are you headed now? Back to Radio Shack. The new 4K TRS-80 color computer is on sale for just 349 bucks. 10 for good buddy. Color graphics, sound, joysticks. Talk to you later. Whoa, where are you going? Radio Shack, of course. The realistic 40-channel CB radio and TRS-80 color computer on sale now. Only at Radio Shack. A Tandy company. Take your Coco beyond the limits of tapes and diskettes. With your modem and a local phone number, you can connect to Delphi, your complete business and personal resource. Delphi has special groups for owners of the Dandy Color Computer, including Rainbow Magazine Online and OS9 Online. Select from thousands of downloadable programs, meet friends from around the globe, or tap into the world's most comprehensive database to expand your knowledge. No extra charges for using TimeNet or Telenet. No monthly minimums. No premium for 1200 or 2400 BPS connection. And connection rates are as low as $7.20 per hour. Delphi, the world's premier online information service. All right. Togo Cruisers, welcome back. Now it is time for this month's news segment. Let's see, our first item of news, a little game announcement from, of course, from Mr. Jim Gary. The game is called Capture, a puzzle-slash-board game by Mac Oglesby, converted from Commodore Pet Force to TRS-80 MC-10. This version is from 1980. It was very entertaining. The link, of course, is to a YouTube video. Uh, he does have a URL in the description of the uh, there that uh, would seem to point at the source code. So, not only do you get a game, you can educate yourself on... Uh, <laughs> How it works. Very cool. Thank you, Mr. Jim Gary. The next link is a Facebook link from uh, Mr. Richard Kelly. And he says, um, you've dealt with it in ECB yourself, no doubt. That dreaded press Y if the screen is blue and if it's red code. Wouldn't it be much easier in ECB if someone already had the code that shows that red or blue screen draws the letters on top telling you to press wire in and then it stores the red or blue colors in various levels A and B. Well, this code does just... <laughs> so basically, Mr. Kelly, in that code, the sort of boilerplate code that uh, I'm sure we're all familiar with as Cocoa people, that shows um, you know, blue versus red, which always seem more like blue versus orange to me, but whatever. <laughs> if you have the need or want to use uh, the P-Mode 4 uh, graphics to do... Uh, color screens, and uh, you don't want to write the code to do the, uh, basically what color is showing now stuff, <laughs> then um, you can pick up this contribution from Mr. Kelly. Very cool. Thank you, Richard. Awesome. The next link this is from uh, Rocky Hill. Testing the Acury board, Rev 1.1.0. A replacement for the ST7756P custom chip. 
So um, if you listen to the tech segments in the first uh, year or so of this uh, of the show, uh, at some point I covered the uh, special chips or the custom chips were available starting with the the Color Computer 2. I guess they both were used in the Color Computer 3 as well. Anyway, uh, one of them is the, um, you know, the salt uh, serial and bubble transfer chip, sort of a power supply chip or power regulator chip. And then the other one, like chip, which um, took some of the other random logic from the Coco One's uh, motherboard and consolidated into this other chip that uh, it has, amongst other things, the DAC, which is used for generating sounds uh, on the Coco Two. Or the DAC is is used on all the Cocos, of course, but the DAC chip is on the Coco Two and, and the Coco Three. So they're pretty unobtainable at this point, except from um, rob from a dead cocoa, or, or maybe even not dead cocoa. Um, and so um, having replacements for those is very cool. Rocky Hill here is um, demonstrating his replacement. There might be others in work, but uh, either way, it's good to have these available for people who have uh, dead, dying, or damaged cocos. Keep them all alive as long as we can. Very cool. Very nice, Rocky. Good to see it. Thank you. Moving on, we've got, well, it's really two links, um, but they're from both from Alan and on sort of the same topic. First uh, link's uh, title is uh, The Coco's Lesser Known Screen Color. Talks a bit about uh, putting the um, 6847 into the, um, basically turning on the CSS, the color set select uh, uh, bit in the configuration register. So instead of um, dark green on light green, you get a, let's call it dark orange on light orange <laughs> screen on the cocoa. There was software back in the day that would use this, and I'd see it, but nothing in the cocoa manuals, at least not the basic, because I, I don't think anything in there ever actually explained what was happening. Uh, I was, you know, 10 years old or whatever. <laughs> I had no idea how that, I just figured that was some magic machine language stuff or whatever. Anyway, it turns out it's not all that hard, <laughs> especially just mode with CSS on. So Alan goes and digs down into this sum and relates it to some of the basic commands or whatever. Specifically, I think he's looking at some of the emulators and how they behave and the surprises he may have found there. There's two links, so there's this an article also on Vintages and New World, New Old, and it's uh, the Coco's Lesser Known Screen Color Revisited. It kind of goes a little more in-depth into the, the same topic, again, with some emphasis on emulator, it looks like. Thank you, Alan. It's so nice to see you when you write up some of these articles. It's always entertaining. First one I have is from a friend of the show, Jim Gary. He's wrote, L. Curtis Boyle has found a new MC10 game. Anyone else know about this? And then followed by that, Jim Gary also writes another one on Facebook here, a message, and it says, uh, Oh my, there's even more. Thanks for letting me know, L. Curtis Boyle. Checking out this game, this, this looks pretty in-depth for an MC-10. Definitely looks machine language for sure. It reminds me of uh, yeah. a little bit of, kind of like Boulder Dash a little bit. Yeah, know. I'm not really sure how the game plays or how in-depth it goes or whatever, but definitely looks good and well-made. Yeah. Uh, judging from the script, there's... Um, an Asian influence here. Um, so that may be why this was happening without us knowing about it. So somehow some MC10 user in uh, 
somewhere in Asia <laughs> and uh, just out of contact. So if uh, if that's you, I'd love for you to reach out and um, and uh, sure. tell us about yourself and all that. I'd love to hear more. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's uh, very impressive. Another game that's uh, definitely uh, worth checking out on the MC10. All right, uh, next news article is from uh, Jamie Lentino at PCMag.com. This is kind of cool. It's uh, Growing Up Gamer in the Kingdom of Daventry. So it's an article here written on uh, he's Jamie's revisiting playing one of the earliest animated adventure games, which is King's Quest, and with his daughter. It's a, it's a cool read if uh, you want to check it out. Yep, very cool. Nice to see some coverage of uh, the old ways, shall we? <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, we, we grew up with these games. Followed by that, leads right into it. This is uh, really cool. It's an article from Darren Draven at The Gamer, and it's uh, titled 10 Ways Sierra Online Changed Video Gaming Forever. And this is uh, it's really cool. It talks about all different advancements they had in their games and pushing the barrier. It's, it's a really good read. I was a big fan of Sierra games back in the day. I mean, I still still like them. Uh, speaking of that, I do want to thank you, John, for uh, pointing me in that Sierra group on Facebook, too. That's uh, I like reading a lot of that stuff in there. And then follow my last one here in this section. This is uh, definitely a Sierra grouping here. A YouTube video by Metal Jesus Rocks at YouTube. And it's uh, titled Behind the Scenes <laughs> with Sierra Online's Al Lowe which is the uh, the man behind Leisure Suit Larry. And uh, he's done work in some other games, too, like King's Quest. So that's a uh, nice interview. If you want a half-an-hour interview there with uh, Al Lowe. All right, we've got another one here from Mr. Jim Gary. It's Peeper by David Wilkins. It's a cool-looking game. This is kind of uh, what I call it, uh, Space Invaders meets Hollywood Squares. <laughs> uh <laughs> Interesting uh, gameplay, you know, it's it's got a bunch of uh, windows and uh, columns and rows, so you have to kind of line up your where you're going to shoot, but then you have to say what floor you want to shoot at. You'd hit one to shoot at floor one or three to shoot at floor three, so it adds kind of an interesting uh, additional element uh, for, for challenge. So, yeah, cool, cool-looking game. Looks like it runs pretty smoothly, so thanks for that, Jim. And our next one is from Matthew Hughes at Wired. It's retro collectors are uncovering hordes of old data, and uh, not in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> this article is talking about finding data that's been left on old retro systems. So you may be spinning up a, a Macintosh from 20 years ago to find uh, all kinds of personal data. I think in the article, one was talking about one that belonged to a dermatologist and had all kinds of dates and times and names and procedures and things like this. So some uh, sensitive uh, information <laughs> uh, on retro computers, this is especially as soon as the hard drive came out. I think most of us here probably would uh, either use a utility to wipe a drive or you know even destroy it or remove it before uh, selling it or whatever. But uh, it's a good uh, cautionary article to uh, read about and uh, make you think about what you might have on a, a drive before you uh, let it back into the wild, as it were. I would think that the type of information, like you said, health data, data related to practice, a dental practice or a physician, not a dental practice, but a physician's practice might be uh, the kind of data that you would have to look for on older systems like that. But what's interesting is that today, 
on a phone, there's a lot more Compromat material that you can find than you could on the old retro computers, specifically given the proliferation of cameras and things like that. So, <laughs> it still reminds me there's a, a meme I see once in a while pop up. This is like, feels like a box of VHS tapes with like handwritten on the labels or whatever. And it says, you know, like, I forget the exactly what it says, but something like, Fan movie night, which one do you risk popping in the VCR with kids around? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, our next article here, we have links to six new AGD game packs from Parasurat. We're seeing a consistent release of these converted games. So, yeah, amazingly so. Yeah, we're swimming in uh, new games for the the Coco. So if you're looking for some new things to check out, definitely follow these links. Uh, yeah, it's just amazing that they, they keep cranking these out. We're up to pack number 47 now. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's awesome. Thanks for that yeah. pair. Welcome to Computers or Us. How can I help you? I'm looking for a color computer. Ah, here's what you want. This is kind of like a color computer. It has color and sound. Oh, and look at these big fat function keys. Well, I was looking more for... Well, we're running a special on serial diskette drives. It can load games in just 90 seconds. No, I'm, I'm really looking for a Tandy color computer. Oh, oh, this is kind of like a color computer. The keyboard is a little smaller, but it can sound just like a C and say. Do you service what you sell? Kinda. We have a 1-800 number. Thanks, but I'm heading to Radio Shack. Service. Support. Technology. Tandy is clearly superior. Don't settle for kinda. Genuine Tandy computers and peripherals are available exclusively at Radio Shack and Radio Shack Computer Centers. Compare. You too will immediately recognize Tandy technology, service, and support are clearly superior. Does your color computer know what time it is? Well, now it can with the RTC-10 real-time clock. The RTC-10 is a quartz-based time-date clock contained in a compact ROM case. The included two-year-plus replaceable battery keeps time accurate when the computer is off and even when the cartridge is unplugged. It can be used with or without a multi-slot unit. The included software allows you to set the clock as well as display time and date in the upper right corner of the video screen. The RTC-10 makes it simple to access the time and date with just a few basic peaks. It's compatible with any 16K or greater extended or non-extended color computer. The RTC-10 comes completely assembled, tested, and ready to plug in and use. The RTC-10 Real-Time Clock. Only $89 from Custom Computer Products. Goshen, New York. Uh, this next one is from Ken Shiriff. It's reverse engineering the Yamaha DX7 synthesizer sound chip from Die Photos. Interesting article on taking a look at what's inside of a DX7 synthesizer chip. DX7 was a very popular synthesizer in the 80s. It was pretty uh, ubiquitous. You can still find them. It's probably one of the most common synthesizers that's out there now. It was really a cutting-edge, lightweight, capable keyboard for its time. But the article really is really about you know reverse engineering the hardware. And, of, of course, this is uh, the story is kind of relevant to what uh, is being attempted now with the Gimme chip. Definitely interesting reading. Not something I plan to get into doing uh, myself in the near future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little in-depth. But, yeah, and I said, like you said, apropos with um, the to do the same kind of work on the Gimme, 
So if you didn't already have a feel for kind of what's involved and what's really happening, then maybe this will help enlighten you some. Big project. I don't know, scale-wise, I'm not sure which is the bigger job versus the, the synthesizer versus the gimme, but either way, a lot of work and a lot of in-depth in um, inspection of uh, <laughs> of images. Whatever. So. The next news item is Logger by Ryan Jenkins from 1984. This looks like a port of a game by a good friend of the show, Mr. Jim Gary. This looks like a basic game that uses the graphics modes on the MC-10, although it says here on the comments, it says another from TRS-80 Color Computer Fantastic game. So this is something apparently published in an in a older book or something. It looks like a cross between, well, it looks like Donkey Kong, actually, is what it seems to me to be, a simplistic version of Donkey Kong. The little character that runs up the ladders is actually composed of, of uh alphanumeric characters it looks like it's pretty ingenious uh, <laughs> way yeah. of doing it. and it looks like a huge rooster at the top throwing out hat signs is that right those are the logs rolling down yeah. so you're looking at this like the at signs the side view of the yeah the log yeah and what is the what is the significance of the rooster or whatever that is well a bird has a hatchet that uh, that uh -huh. he's stolen from you and Got that's it. what you're trying to do is get to the top yeah. and get to the hatchet a pretty cool game <laughs> Yeah. Very cool. All right. The next news item is Programming in 1987 versus Today by Curtis Poe. I read this uh, earlier when I saw it online. It's a bit of a commentary on programming <laughs> in BASIC on a Coco, in fact. Uh, it's what he indicates a Coco 2 and uh, kind of goes through some sample code and then even talks about Perl code there at the end. So kind of a philosophical commentary, I would say. You know, some philosophical or whatever stuff, but also the ultimate thing you're trying to do, parse, hit the skeleton with a sword, take his ring, and then walk north and touch the altar. <laughs> Just kind of a ridiculously long sentence to put into an adventure game. But uh, so the notion of writing a parser for something like that, I think probably a bunch of us at one point or another thought, well, I can write some kind of text adventure. How, how do I parse these strings or whatever? I might not be too averse to it these days um, with, you know, a career's worth of programming experience behind me. But uh, when I was 10 years old, I didn't have any idea how to how to process that, uh, trying to figure it out for myself. Um, so you see my name on any adventure game, so to tell you how far I got it. <laughs> anyway, kind of cool. Yep, good article. The next news item is The High Cost of Software in the 1980s by Rob Griffiths. This was an interesting article. You wouldn't think that software back then was expensive, but uh, he gives a listing of a number of examples out of ads in a magazine just to show you how expensive in today's dollars uh, software was. He, he talks about uh, Rotobin software having a payroll and a general ledger program that was um, 395 bucks back in the day, and how much it would be today. It's pretty remarkable. So something we tell ourselves a lot, or I hear people say in uh, retro geek all the times is, 
the games today is basically cost the same as they always have about 40 or 50 bucks for a, you know i don't know whatever they're buying but and that sort of there's that 40 or 50 dollar price tag that is sort of remain constant but you know and even though inflation at least until the past year hasn't been a big thing since the, the, the 80s perhaps it still has existed <laughs> and it does it does add up over time um, and, you, and you apply some of these uh, computer, consumer price index or whatever inflation values against some of these things, and, and you know, paying forty dollars today versus paying forty dollars in nineteen eighty three actually is a big difference in the uh, amount of spend power. Kind of amazing how much uh, how much we were spending back then, and it's sort of no wonder all the kids were pirating software. There's no way we could have bought it otherwise. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. You bring up a good point about inflation today. He might have to update this article next month, the way things are going. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. The next news item is Dandy Radio Shack Computer Cassette Recorders, TRSCCR by Void Store. This is a link to an article that is chronicling the Tandy Computer Cassette Recorders that were made and sold through Radio Shack. I see four of them. Of course, I owned the CCR81. It was my very first tape recorder that I got with my Coco 2 when I got my Coco 2 in 1985. So uh, this certainly brings back memories for me. It also goes over things like uh, belt repair notes and things like that. So a pretty good resource, it looks like. Yeah, it's pretty neat to, to give in on that and uh, a lot of details and, and um Kind of cool when somebody goes in on, you know, the variations on a product or whatever, explain why you might want one versus the other or that sort of thing. Oh, pretty cool. Yep. Good information. Good historical. Nice to see the attention. Yep. All right. The next news item is block down live video footage running on real Cocoa hardware by Mr. Neil Blanchard. This is... Facebook post by none other than uh, Neil, who uh, is going over Blockdown. Neil, you're on, so why don't you talk about this? Yeah, I decided to uh, create a video because I had a lot of requests uh, that people wanted to actually see the game running. So I figured, well, what better way to do it? Run it on some real Cocoa hardware. They can see the uh, graphics and uh, hear the audio playing, which is nice, off the GMC. The next news item is Star Swoop. For the Dragon, it uses semi-graphic mode 8 and has nice graphics and animations. I patched it to run with this basic and the Coco keyboard layout by Mr. Guillaume Major. This is a, actually, this is a pretty good-looking game just based on the screenshots. I love just the title screen itself. Very creative, colorful uh, title. Uh, I presume this is written in assembly language. I haven't played it, I don't know, but it looks like it would be in an assembly language game. And I don't know how old it is. Is it back from the 80s or uh, what its vintage is, but it looks like a cool game. The next news item is Replacement Membrane Project Update by Mr. Mike Rojas. This is an update on Facebook. Mike is posting some pictures uh, with the, looks like the Coco One keyboard. No, it's Coco 3, actually, sorry. Wow, he's even showing some pictures of switches and 3D printed some of this stuff. Not sure, but uh, he's really getting into it. 
Looks like a pretty detailed post here. Wow, interesting. And pretty amazing work. Certainly something we need because uh, I've got several keyboards that are dead because the mylars are just shot. You know, you get the conductive material starts flaking off, and the next thing you know, yeah. heroic keys don't work or yeah, the mess. So good work. All right, the next news item is why do retro games look better on old TVs by Jake Peterson at Lifehacker. I read this quickly, <laughs> scanning through it. There is some truth to this. I don't know if it's a nostalgia factor because, you know, we all grew up playing on a real TV as opposed to LCD monitors and the plethora of choices we have today to do video conversions on, on the Coco and others. But um, it could be just like he says, the scan lines, the scan lines give uh, retro games a distinctive look. That's certainly true, you know. Um, it's kind of a, just a magic of watching the game on an old CRT uh, that just makes it look like it belonged there. So I really enjoyed this article. You see, articles are sort of the same uh, <laughs> conclusion or whatever, but uh, I figured I'd throw it in. You can't get too much coverage, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. We have another one from friend of the show, Mr. Jim Gary. It's Apple Integer Basic Chess that's been uh, converted to run on the MC10. The next two links are actually about this. This is an interesting uh, chess program. It was written in BASIC, which is <laughs> fascinating in its own right. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and of course, all the pieces, they're, they're not graphic pieces. They're, they're represented with uh, letters, which can make it uh, challenging to play. If you're a uh, person who's into chess, you'd probably enjoy this. One of the uh, features is apparently, you know, because you enter your moves in column and row format from and to, uh, apparently, it lets you make illegal moves, so uh, you can uh, <laughs> you can you can cheat if you want to. So if you're lousy at chess, you may may enjoy that very much. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting that you could fit a chess program, uh, a basic chess program, into that small amount of memory. So pretty cool. Check it out. All right, we have one from Anna Noah Grotsky. It is old school computing when your lab PC is ancient. I like this article very much because uh, uh, you definitely should read this because a lot of the, there's a lot of specialized computer equipment in the science community, the military community. Uh, and I guess for lack of a better word, you could say there are certain systems that are bespoke for, uh, for specific purposes. So uh, like to control right. telescopes or satellites and they have a very long lifespan medical equipment, very specialized kind of equipment. And some of these things have been running for 50 years and will probably uh, keep running. So different kind of different kind of spin on uh, retro computing because uh, these are still running. So interesting article. People end up retro computing <laughs> by accident, I guess, but, um, you know, out of necessity, <laughs> it's kind of cool. Not even realizing they're doing it. There are many great word processors for the color computer, but there's only one that gives you the simplicity of a point-and-click interface. It's Max 10 from Colorware. Max 10 is a true WYSIWYG word processor. WYSIWYG means what you see is what you get. What you see on your screen is what you will see on your printer. Combine multiple fonts, incorporate pictures into your documents, format in columns, making newsletters a joy to work with. Max 10 is so easy, it's almost completely intuitive. Max 10 from Colorware. <laughs> 
the word processing program you've been waiting for. It looks good for OS9. We're coming forward with the config command. It all looks good. Roger, CHX2 slash D0 slash command. I've got a blowout in the Coco 3. Receipt the Gibby. It's no good. I've got garbage on the screen. Correction, cycle power for 30 seconds. Both disk lights are on. She's breaking up. She's The Color Computer, 6809, a computer barely alive. Gentlemen, we can rebuild it. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first advanced color computer. The Coco 4 will be that computer. Better than it was before. Better stronger, faster. All right, our next one is from Stephen Cass at IEEE Spectrum. 10 gifts for retrocomputing fans. This uh, link is kind of a rundown of uh, some kits that are available, new kits are available for uh, that are retro computers. So, you know, Z80 bus computers and uh, PDP kits, and it's worth a look to see some of the things that are available out there. Uh, we need to get some more 6809 uh, kits out there, though. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Well, it's up to, to Boise and his uh, his uh, pals uh, to get more 6809 CPUs out in the world. <laughs> yeah, that definitely has some uh, good possibilities. So We're working on it. <laughs> We're watching that with bated breath. Okay, we have an article from Sarah Wells at Inverse. 54 years ago, a computer programmer fixed a massive bug and created an existential crisis. <laughs> oh, this article is, related, is, is all about the history of the blinking cursor. <laughs> yeah. The title's a little breathless, I think, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's still an interesting article. The next uh, link is really two links um, from uh, Robert Sieg. Robert pops up from time to time, generally in the MC10 side of the house. A lot of his work involves full-screen project, he calls it. Basically, it's... Um, you can turn on uh, the graphics modes on the 6847 in the MC10 that take up, uh, that actually use more memory than is available in the MC10. <laughs> and, and so you get kind of a, a reflection pattern between the top and the bottom of the screen. And if you're clever, you can make use of that and make it look like, you know, you're using the whole screen when you're really only using two-thirds of the screen. And because uh, you get to you mirror the top to the bottom or whatever, he's uh posted first a video the MC10 MCX. So this is combining with the MC128, which is the Darren Atkinson designed um update or, or an expansion for the MC10 that adds some um enhancements to basic and some memory upgrade as well. But uh, let's see, he's done something here. That, that he's um, so I don't know what this Game Boy editor is. I didn't dig too deeply, 
but it looks like it's something that's designed for doing graphics for the Game Boy, and that he somehow adapted the output to be useful for an MC10 program, and so he's showing a, a Berserk-inspired game running on the MC10 uh, and using graphics that's created on this uh, Game Boy editor. So pretty cool. I always like to see people figure out how to make use of tools that already exist rather than having to, to write new ones. I don't know how much effort it's to adapt or, or whatever comes out of it. It uh, certainly looks like the, the options on the screen that are showing for that Game Boy editor are mentioning things like CSS and CG graphics versus RG monographics and SG6. So somebody's done some adaptation to um, the uh, MC10 and or the 6847-style graphics hardware. I don't know. I'd love to see somebody do it around that. Um, if anybody knows uh, more information about that or, Robert, if you're listening, uh, feel free to contact us with more information on this uh, using the Game Boy editor for the MC10. I'd like to learn more about that. So there's a second link below that, which points to a Facebook post um, from Robert. Is in regard to the full screen project, and I was realizing it would need an easy to use art program to make that Game Boy application compatible instead of making the application myself. So I guess Robert's done this editor there. Possible to load Game Boy application TASM or BIN output directly into the FSP. So that's a full screen project. Um, anyway, so he's been doing some tool related work for the Co. I'm sorry, for the MC-10. A lot of it ties into this full-screen project, so this high-res mode on the MC-10. So, I mean, it's interesting work. I don't quite understand all of what's going on. Um, I haven't found a lot of uh, write-up on it, so I've kind of gleaned it from <laughs> seeing a few posts here and there. But hopefully that does it justice. There you go. So... <laughs> Moving on from there, we've got um, the next link. I guess the next couple of them come from Jim Gary. He's got a game called Pooper. <laughs> I'm not really sure what that's about, although I kind of fear what it might be about. <laughs> but, uh, it's about picking up so a dog. On, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> based on a game for the Sinclair ZX-1 by Dr. Beep, this version is in Microcolor Basic for the TRS-80MC-10. He's got a link to the original if you want to find that. So, okay, so another Jim Gary game. Looks pretty cool. Clever use of the alphanumeric character set. Fine. So, but then there's another link that uh, is a pooper using Robert Sieg's FSP. So you see why they're all tucked in here together. So this is a version of my 10-liner basic game, Pooper, running under Robert Sieg's full screen project. There's a little dog character poops in the park cleaner armed with a deadly spade. <laughs> um, anyway, so there it ties in. So the, it's got some cooperation going on in the MC10 world. So you've got the full screen project and some graphics tooling or whatever. And then there's a, a game from uh, Gary, of course there is. He's going to be able to put them together into uh, some useful work. So... Very cool. Uh, so good to see that collaboration. And uh, nice to have another. So very cool. All right. So the next link is uh, from um, Canadian Retro Things at YouTube. 
the title is Basic 09, Part 1, Some of What is Possible. It's kind of an introductory video talking about using uh, programming in the Basic 09 language, of course, on top of Nitrous 9. I'm sure it's a good introduction, and uh, if you've never looked much at Basic 09, it's probably a good thing to consider, especially if you enjoy recreational programming under OS 9 or on your Cocoa in general, then uh, it's something to look at and evaluate and uh, check out. And then, of course, we have a, a second video, also from Canadian Radio Things, Basic 09 Part 2, Commands for the System and Edit Modes. So, again, more introduction, introductory stuff for Basic 09. So, moving on <laughs> to Mr. James Jones, you can't mention Basic 09 and get very far in the modern Cocoa community without bumping into James Jones. James, of course, is a, was a compiler person, worked at Microware, very uh, intellectual, computer science uh, kind of person and who seems to have a, a great love for Basic 09 in particular. <laughs> yeah, I think in response to the videos from Canadian Retro Things, he does uh, a couple of videos here. He says, we start with the eight queens problem. How many ways can you arrange eight queens on the board so that none attack any of the others? So I think it's a, kind of a, a classic or a problem in computer science of intellectual challenge, that sort of thing, whatever. Then he also has a couple other videos directly related as a the second to go nine versus color basic video looks at what Rosetta Code calls the count the coins problem. So um, another kind of intellectual um, exercise in, in uh, basic or nine. And not exactly in the same series, but sort of in the same time period. I <laughs> uh, picked up another uh, link from Mr. Jones who says, here's source for basic nine code that does what the program on page 432 of how Chamberlain's musical applications of microcomputers does. So if you've ever been browsing musical applications of microcomputers and hit page 432 and wondered, well, what does this program do? <laughs> <laughs> James here has the solution for you. Oh, yeah. It says, okay, Facebook ad file option does absolutely nothing. I'll try to upload them. So it's probably uploaded in the Facebook group. I'm sure you can find it if you're interested enough. And if you can't, for some reason, feel free to reach out to me. Provide me a feedback on how terrible my links are, and I'll try to figure out uh, where the file is and help you find it. <laughs> so fair enough. Uh, I hope so. Anyway, thank you, James, for your uh, collection of um, videos and insights and that sort of things. We've got a Facebook post from Jason Oakley uh, titled, I've been helping out adding support for my platform to a programming system called Turbo Rascal Syntax Error. It's looking for people who um, know some 6809 and are interested in helping out with the weirdly named rascal syntax error. Anyway, it's kind of neat, um, kind of Pascal-like programming language um, designed for retro computers. If you know something about the Coco in 6809 and are interested in helping out on a programming language um, development system, it looks like they're calling for help. And if you want to know more what about uh, Turbo Rascal is, uh, then that's, that's the next there and the, the one 
by Lillian Day at Hackaday. All right, uh, next uh, news article here is uh, it's a YouTube video, uh, AC's 8-bit zone. It's actually a multi-video here, but looks like the bulk of it here is convert old IBM PC Junior joysticks to the Tandy Coco Deluxe style. Those are the joysticks that actually look identical to, to the Coco ones. This video shows how to wire them to work on your Coco. And it would also work on the Tandy 1000 as well. That's useful. Yeah, pretty cool. I mean, they're, they're definitely made, the craft made. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, cheesy joysticks. <laughs> um, yeah, that that was it. That was the brand. Yeah, I, I couldn't think of the name. Craft. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be quite a few out there. It's not going to be a matter of just replacing the the cable end. You're going to have to actually do a little rewiring, not major, but a little bit of rewiring inside the joystick. Um, yeah, but it should be relatively simple to do. So good, yeah. good project. Good to know. Yeah, especially if you have a few of those joysticks laying around. Once in a while, you'll see somebody who's got a bunch for sale. Um, they're probably the kind of was made by the millions, if not at least hundreds of thousands, and somewhere somebody's got a a, a few in a warehouse that they'll be able to sell you for four dollars a piece or something like that. So, right. If you luck upon that, um, then uh, you know what to do. All right, uh, next uh, news article here moving along is from Simon Jonesson, the mad coder. And he has uh, coded a Super Sprite YM player. That's to run on the Super Sprite board uh, with an MPI, of course, in slot number one. It says it's very simple for now. It does sound great. I have listened to it. The, uh, the harmonics are really nice on it. And then it looks like he's got yeah. a follow-up video. Simon's got another one here uh, titled... Okay, finally getting a handle on the VDP on the Super Sprite board. That's cool to see he's doing some work with that. Yep, very nice. Yeah. All right, and finishing off the news uh, section here is uh, another one from a friend of the show, Jim Gary. Galactic Hitchhiker. You got another uh, MC10 game. This is a um, text adventure. It's pretty fun. Yeah, it looks pretty cool. Yep. Well, we good to have one more from Jim Carrey, right? <laughs> yeah, perfect. All right. Well, that comes to the end of our news segment. So we'll take a short break, and then we'll be back with feedback. The Gamester is the ultimate two-button joystick controller for your color computer, Dragon, and Tandy 1000. The Gamester features a genuine arcade-quality joystick with two large arcade-quality cherry switch buttons on a single surface. Best of all, the hardware is mounted in a sturdy wooden cabinet. It sits comfortably on your lap or on your desk. Experience the difference that super high-quality, heavy-duty components make in your gameplay. No more finger fatigue. Responsive button switches. Sturdy components that can take the punishment of even the most enthusiastic player. Every Gamester is built to order. Choose the wood for your cabinet. Choose custom paint or stain and finishes. Select the cable length for your Gamester. Choose a left-handed configuration or add adapters for your Dragon computer. The Gamester is designed to last a lifetime. To build yours, simply reach out to Neil Blanchard by email. Neil at CocoCrew.org. That's N-E-I-L at C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W dot org. 
Experience genuine arcade controller action for all of your favorite color computer, Dragon, and Tandy 1000 computer games. For true arcade action, it's The Gamester. This month in Coco History. Welcome to This Month in Coco History, where we explore events in the life of our favorite home computer. I'm Boise Pete, and this month we take a step back 38 years to the January 1984 issue of Hot Cocoa and a unique peripheral. On page 75 of that issue is a full-page advertisement from JNOR Industries with the title, quote, Expand Your Color Computer, end quote. The ad touts the User ADC, or User Selectable Expansion Requirements ADC, as an expansion interface for the color computer, quote, designed with the user in mind, end quote, for $249.95. This six-slot expansion device is shown in two photos, one directly attached to the side of a color computer and another with just a device itself in view. According to the ad, any of the six slots of the user ADC is selectable with either a push-button key affixed to the top of the box or through programming. The plethora of slots available allows a connection of a disk controller, ROM or RAM cartridge, EEPROM board, or any other color computer peripheral. The user ADC utilizes its own reset button and has its own on-off switch with an LED indicator. It also has gold inlay connector contacts for more reliable operation and an externally located switching power supply that provides power to the unit. The ad also promises, quote, more to come, end quote such as analog-digital converters, parallel ports for printers, cassette recorders, joysticks, and even a four-channel scope. It's unclear if JNOR Industries delivered on such ambitious product goals, but its user ADC certainly gave the four-slot multipack from Tandy a run for its money. And that's this month in Coco History. For versatile, powerful word processing on the Coco 3, look no further than WordPower 3. Written in 100% machine language, no other word processor offers the speed, power, or flexibility of WordPower 3. Editing is effortless with WordPower 3. Access the help screen anytime. Features include split-screen editing, mail merge, on-screen two-column print, spell checker, punctuation checker, and a built-in four-function calculator accessible while you edit. Printing is a breeze with WordPower 3's built-in print spooler. No more waiting on your printer. Print a large job while you work on another. WordPower 3 provides for up to 72K of text on a 128K system and over 450K of text on a 512K system. That's more text than any other Coco 3 word processor. WordPower includes a quick reference card and full instruction manual for just $79.95. Step up to the power and versatility of professional Coco 3 word processing software. Step up to WordPower 3 from Microcom Software. Welcome back, Coco Cruisers. Uh, now it's time for a little section of feedback. All right, the first couple here are um, in reference to host discussion topic from, uh, I guess, this last month. <laughs> Sometimes they blend together or slip away. But um, basically on um, when is it okay to go ahead and proceed to do a project that somebody else has, uh, has kind of claimed or whatever, but you want to do it or need to do it or you know, uh, that's the gist of it anyway. <laughs> um, so we got a comment uh, back from Mr. James Diffendaffer. 
So in his comment, um, kind of the core of it at least, he says, uh, it would be nice if the person were to at least ask the original author out of courtesy. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. And of course, this couldn't help but be reminded of having touched on this type of this basic topic, I guess, in the past. And that was essentially what what I thought we said and seemed to be rather controversial <laughs> a couple of years ago. Maybe um, maybe living through the COVID or whatever has mellowed some of us out. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not singling James out. I don't remember him being too much of a part of that other row. But, uh, you know, whatever. Hopefully at least the the adult um, position here is uh, let's be nice and courteous to each other and and not don't be jerks. Hopefully that wins out. Anyway, thanks for the comments, James. I'm sure they were well intended. Let's see. Next one comes from um, Mr. Greg Miller. Don't hear a lot out of Greg. Once in a while he pops up. Um, he did a cycle accurate um, um, VHDL uh, implementation of the 6809 a, a, a while back. Um, so uh, this guy, he has he has some cred, shall we say? <laughs> anyway, um, talking in general about um, you know people potentially stepping on each other's toes or taking each other's projects or whatever. So he says, uh, a few situations that I ended up grumpy about were when I mentioned it to someone and they ended up doing it, apparently recognizing that it was a good idea. As a result, I try not to talk about what I'm working on at any given time, aside from a small group of trusted folks. Which I totally understand, Greg, although, and I guess I would thank you for pointing out that this, you know, a real life example, shall we say, or at least a real life anecdote, that uh, I'm not the only one who thinks this happens. <laughs> I think it's um, kind of sad that we have to um, uh, sort of hide our projects from one another a little bit, or at least our potential project, uh, because of that exact reason. But uh, I guess uh, such is, is life. Uh, at least such as life in a cocoa world. Thank you, Greg, for acknowledging that that's a concern, um, folks. And um, I don't know what we do with it or about it, but uh, it's good to at least acknowledge it. That's right. Anyway, moving on from that topic, next little feedback item comes from Mr. Brian Weasler. Uh, he says, I really like Mike's commercial he did for the cocoa cool. That commercial inspired me to start looking for one to add to my collection. Now, I believe, if I recall, I saw some pictures that uh, Brian did find one for his collection. So, uh, <laughs> cool. so that's cool, literally. <laughs> and so Mike uh, jogged his memory or whatever, and um, he uh, found a uh, another little artifact for his collection that's um, interesting, practical, useful in certain ways probably not as practical or useful these days because most of us probably don't run them for hours and heat them up as much as we used to. <laughs> Certainly would have been a cool <laughs> item to have um, back in the day when I was actually overheating my cocoa from time to time. Anyway, but cool. Good to hear from you, Brian. I'm not intentionally saying cool over and over, but it's kind of cool that I can make that cool reference. <laughs> um, anyway... That's all the feedback that we have this at this time. So um, why don't we call an end of this segment, and then we'll be back with um, the rest of the show. 
So what did you want to show me? Check this out. I do this poke, and the printer is now at 9,600. Yeah, that's a popular one. And I wrote this little program to do all these pokes to give me access to 40-track drives. Yeah. And this one lets me access both sides of the drive. Okay. And this utility automatically creates line numbers for me in BASIC. You do know that all these things are built into ADOS, don't you? Huh? Have you been living in a cave somewhere? ADOS adds all sorts of cool functions to your color computer, all the things you described and more. It even supports true lowercase on the new Coco 2s. You're kidding me. ADOS adds things like repeat keys so you can edit your last command, DOS command for OS 9, error trapping in BASIC, there's a RAM command to run in full RAM mode, two column disk directories, keyword abbreviation, and that doesn't even scratch the surface of the features of ADOS. That sounds easier than all these pokes and short utility programs. You better believe it. And ADOS comes with an easy-to-use configuration program. You just run it, enable the things you want, Ignore what you don't want. That sounds great. You can run ADOS from disk, or you can have ADOS create a ROM image, and you can just burn that onto a ROM and put it on your disk controller, so it boots up right into ADOS every time you boot your Coco. Imagine, you never have to set your baud rate again. Wow, that's amazing. Will it work with my Coco 1? ADOS works with both Coco 1 and Coco 2 systems, and it's available for just $27.95. You'll wonder how you ever lived without it. Supercharge your color computer with ADOS from Spectro Systems. Spectro Systems, Miami, Florida. All right, Coco Cruisers, welcome back. We're going to have a little host discussion, discussion amongst the hosts. In our prep talks, or as we're getting ready to do the podcast, we were talking a little bit about, well, kind of outrageously priced things that have popped up on eBay, especially those of us who have been around long enough to remember when, if you heard somebody had some cocoa stuff, you basically would just call them to ask when you could back your truck up to their house, and they'd throw all the stuff in the back. That's true. (laughs) Nowadays, that's a little less likely. There are, like I said, there some. There've been some multi-hundred-dollar listings on on eBay recently for Coco systems, not just Coco Three. I don't know if they're selling or not. They're worth a lot more, or at least the bundles with a floppy drive or whatever. These days, I'm not sure how serious a collector you have to be. Does adding a floppy drive even make a system more valuable these days, or does it make it less valuable? There for a while, it seemed like a system with a floppy driver was all with a floppy drive was almost less valuable because it just meant it was heavier. <laughs> what do you think is the is happening with the cocoa market or retro stuff in general? I mean, we are at a point. I don't know if we're quite to an inflection point, but for example, I turned fifty with you know a couple of months ago. I'm not um, I'm not super young, but I'm not by any means the oldest person in the community. So the, the community's getting plenty of gray hair. What happens to the market as some of us um, are participating in the market? Shall we say? I don't know. What do we expect to happen to our retro markets, particularly the cocoa market, over the next say five years? I don't know if it's going to crash. Also, don't think there's. I mean, a lot of people collecting this stuff. They're not that old either, so I don't know what their plans are. They probably haven't thought about, you know, if something happens to them, you know, what their uh, their spouse is going to do with it. That's a good question, but I, I don't think a lot of people have thought that far ahead. Yeah. Well, should we? I mean, I, I, we probably should. Oh, for sure. Uh, I know. In my high school class. Um, <laughs> Seems like every year we add, uh, well, it used to be we'd add one person, maybe two, and it seemed like the past year we added like five or six, and they weren't COVID either. Oh, so, um, maybe, you know, like I said, I turned 50. Maybe 50 is uh, old enough to start worrying about that stuff. 
Uh, and I'm sure there's plenty of people that are that I know in the in the cocoa world that are 60s even 70s. That's not necessarily drop dead age, but it's would not exactly a shock if it happens either. You know what I mean? I don't know. What about also stuff has gotten rarer and more popular over the past few years, has driven the prices up. But we've we've been hearing about record inflation in the real world, shall we say? And when it starts to cost ten bucks a pound to have hamburgers. Does that make you less likely to want to buy an MPI <laughs> or, or uh, you know, a Cocoa SDC when it's harder to find, um, you know, milk on the shelves or whatever? I'm going to quote a Nadi's phenomenon on TV, Susan Powder. Stop the insanity. <laughs> the prices on eBay are nuts. Not all of them, but for the most part, what I'm seeing on Cocoa 3s is just, I, I don't know. I can't believe they're selling. I, as I said earlier in the segment or in, in another segment in the show that I saw a Cocoa 3, I think with a cassette recorder and a, a floppy drive for almost $1,300 on eBay with like $125 to ship or something like that. I, I just don't see how that can be sustained. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are more heavy hitter collectors coming to the Cocoa community because, frankly, by and large, what I've seen at Cocoa Fest, Cocoa people are typically cheap uh, and don't have the kind of luxury to spend that kind of money. So maybe there's more entrance into the market that have more disposable income. Maybe it's a combination of that and inflation. But I just, I think it's, uh, I just think it's unsustainable in the long run eBay is a marketplace, so you just let the market do its thing. I, I doubt people are going to be, you know, if people start buying Cocos for $1,200 on a regular basis, a lot of us are going to start selling them. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's true. So if if the demand is high and the supply is low, then, you know, that'll determine the price. But probably what usually happens i mean and of course we've all made fun of the uh, the new york times coco <laughs> 2 that's been out there for 299 for years and uh, it's still there so yeah i agree with your your argument about mar market forces i just think that some people are so the price is so ludicrous that you know maybe they'll sell it but maybe they won't i don't sit there and watch to see if they eventually sell them but i just want to you know shake them and say wake up Something else I'll add with eBay, I particularly, if I sell on eBay, I don't want to sit on the item. Like The, the whole point is I want to sell it. I want to move it out fast. But what I always do is I look at completed listings, like sold listings. Because, I mean, you're going to get those dreamers, you know, that are, you know, like that New York Times Cocoa that you just mentioned. I don't want stuff to be there for a couple of years. So, I, I mean, I mean, I want it gone in a couple of weeks, a couple of days. So I just look at completed listings. I get an idea of what it's worth. If I don't know what it's worth, and then it uh, it seems to move pretty fast that way. Well, you know, the New York Times cocoa isn't looking so expensive anymore these days. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that that's the sad part. Yeah. <laughs> it's like holding on to a stock. If you hold it long enough, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Actually, get a good price sure. for it. <laughs> so one thing that I've kind of noticed. You know, you're seeing more, you know, people with random YouTube videos. Uh, and they'll pop up and say, hey, I got this TRS-80 color computer 
two. Let's look at what's inside. And first thing to do, they open it up, and it it only has 16k. I'm gonna upgrade it to 64k. Then I'm gonna look and see what kind of software I can run on it, or you know something like it's yeah. you know, basically obvious that the person is not really a cocoa person. They're more like a generic retro, even maybe not even a generic retro collector, more like a, a opportunist or whatever that's just picked something up and decided to do a project on it. Um, and I don't know what's, you know, I, I would presume that this podcast uh, is part of the overall zeitgeist that has enabled that to happen. Uh, obviously, there's other podcasts or other uh, YouTube uh, shows out there that are driving some amount of enthusiasm. But I guess the question is, are we somehow, is there some sort of cocoa popularity wave that is breaking around us that uh, is making this somehow more popular to pick up a cocoa and and upgrade the, the to extended color basic and put in 64K and and then figure out what to do with it, if anything. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sure I could, you're, you're seeing evidence of that? Oh, yeah, with the videos you just mentioned. Uh, I see people who, when you see, used to see videos on YouTube of people doing stuff with the cocoa, it was somebody who you knew in the community or was somewhat familiar, passively familiar, I guess, in the cocoa community. Now you're seeing people who are like, uh, who's this guy? Who's this, you know, person? Just people out of the blue, investing or investigating a cocoa like they've never seen it before, like they're looking at some, you know, fish bones in a in a rock or something. So yeah, I see it all the time. Yeah. More and more, more and more. I'm not sure I understand that mindset, honestly. I mean, I probably have picked up some random device or another, and then found out just enough about it to figure out to upgrade the memory or something like that, but. You know, honestly, just don't mess with those machines that much. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I don't quite get the why do I, why would you want to pick up something you know nothing about and then learn just enough to upgrade it and then still do nothing with it or whatever. <laughs> um, there's no doubt I'm creating haters amongst a certain group at this point saying that, but um, the I'm not sure. I, I don't really understand the mindset. Well, I think that is dry, maybe driving anyway. this price that we're seeing this price increase and in these crazy prices is the, the you know the the perceived novelty and and rarity of these computers. Now, getting back to that Coco Three that I mentioned for twelve hundred some bucks that I saw on eBay, it did have a floppy drive with it, like I said, an FD five hundred two, and I think the listing said that it was unopened in the box, and obviously. When you get a Coco 3, it's quote-unquote brand new in the box, and I'm sure there's some out there, I've got a few myself, that you're going to be able to fetch, you know, command a pretty good price. But And I think the disk drive was the same in the same shape. But uh, even so, uh, I'm seeing open box or just Coco 3s without a box being put on eBay sometimes for six, 700 bucks. Wow. So, crazy. And I think you're right, John. I think some of that is driven by the, the fringe elements coming into the community or, you know, experimenting or poking around what is a cocoa and then seeing that and thinking, hey, I've got one of these. Let me try to make a quick buck on it. Yeah, so are we beating the drum too hard <laughs> or bringing in too many people? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I'm sure we can't really fix it. We could just probably try to wait it out. Yeah. Uh, I remember early on in this podcast, roughly the time frame, um, I think it was you boys who sort of declared that the $300 was going to be the, the price of our Coco 3 before long. And, um, you know, we uh, kind of poo-pooed you a little bit. And uh, it didn't happen immediately, but it didn't really take that long either <laughs> before it was the $300 for Coco 3s regularly. Yeah. And I think I picked up one since then that was, you know, I was excited to get, I got one for $200 or something like that. But, but, uh, you know, they are pricier than that these days. Uh, I don't think we're selling a lot at 1200 honestly, but, uh, I hope not. Uh, well, I mean, I guess it's good for the people who have them, but I kind of would prefer to keep a more sane price on those. Um, uh, I don't know what's happening in, say, the Apple II community um, or the Commodore community. I'm not sure if they're having any big price spikes, but, well, I don't know. It's hard to know. And even if they were, it wouldn't necessarily translate to us. But I remember um, that. I remember making that uh, pronouncement some years ago. And obviously the price went uh, went right through my uh, my ceiling. So, yeah, we're, we're past the $300 <laughs> cocoa free now. Well, that's why everyone should love the Coco One. A great machine. I like it. A lot of socketed parts on the motherboard. It can do 12 volts out the cartridge port. What more can you ask for? It's a great machine. Yep. So buy up Coco Ones. A lot of the parts in there is off the shelf. Yep. Well, I doubt if we've swung the market to, to Coco Ones, but we tried. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly they go up. <laughs> that would be kind of funny. Anyway, um, so if we've made you angry, uh, I'm sure somebody out there is angry over something we've said. Feel free to let us know. Feedback, F-E-D-B-A-C-K, at CocoCrew.org, and uh, let us know what you're thinking. And, of course, if you're that person that uh, said they were tired of hearing me spell um, <laughs> on the podcast, Feel free to send us a note about that, too. All right. Is that the end of the discussion? Is there anything else to add? All right. Well, why don't we draw this to a close and um, probably hit you with another segment or two. Uh, And so um, with that, uh, enjoy the rest of the show. Autoterm turns your cocoa into the world's smartest terminal. Scroll text forward and backward. Save, load, and delete files while online. Full support for the RS-232 pack, X-Modem, and even split screen for packet radio. Screen widths of 32, 40, 42, 51, or 64, plus 80 column support for the Coco 3. Switch instantly to word processing mode. Find strings instantly. Create text. Make corrections, save, or load files. Then upload them to a remote system. Fully compatible with Telewriter. Plus full automation tools to automate dialing, keystroke, macros, uploading, and downloading. Autoterm runs on the Coco 2 and Coco 3. No other computer can match your Coco's intelligence as a terminal. Autoterm from PXE Computing, Richardson, Texas. 1863. Confederate forces invade the northern states. Battle of Gettysburg. A tactical battle simulator that allows you to lead thousands of soldiers in the Battle of Gettysburg as commander of the Union Army. 
Your decisions and military performance play a crucial role in the result. Lead your army and win the Battle of Gettysburg. Rainbow Magazine says, this game provides the best feel of any tactical game for the color computer. Color Computer News says, win or lose, you will know you have been in a battle. Battle of Gettysburg requires 16K extended basic with joystick and cassette. Battle of Gettysburg from Soft Ride. Greetings, Coco Cruisers. Welcome to this month's tech segment. This is John Linville, and we're going to talk a bit about a little toy project that kind of came to me over Christmas break. Well, it's the joystick tester for the Coco style joysticks, which of course covers the Tandy 1000 as well. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking, and some, some of you have even said, well, why bother? Or can't you just plug it into a cocoa and, <laughs> and go from there? And it's just pretty simple to do those things. Of course, you have to have a cocoa, a working cocoa, and it needs to be, you know, plugged into a, a TV or something like that. Most people don't carry those things around. Not that I really expect people to carry this around either. <laughs> but it was smart enough that they could do it. And, um, well... I don't know, it was kind of a goofy, it sounded like a kind of a goofy project to me originally. It's kind of spoofing it a little bit, and then uh, suddenly it kind of occurred to me some things that could be done. So, hey, why not? And I broke out my CACAD, which uh, is a convenient tool for doing PCB design, and started messing around, uh, first with schematics, and then the, from the PCB from there. This printed circuit board, for those not in the know. <laughs> Before long, I had something, and so then I sent off for basically a prototype run and about five boards and uh, got those back and um, had a couple of issues with the boards. Um, the uh, footprints that I used for the resistors weren't really the right size and a couple of issues along those lines and um, made some uh, modifications, sent off, and now I have the second revision of the boards. Hadn't put those together yet, but they're looking pretty good. So... I thought it might be fun to talk a little bit about how this project works and you know what exactly it is, whatever. Yeah, so it's a, a printed circuit board that's designed for you to plug in a Tandy 1000 or Coco style joystick and be able to evaluate the joystick in situ, so to speak, you know, in the situation and see if it actually works. It's not perfect, it's not going to give you exact results. But it gives you some good idea of whether or not the thing works. Uh, so, let's see. We basically have, well, looking at the diagram, the schematic diagram, uh, I guess there's sort of three basic circuits involved here. And uh, the first is um, what's a power supply. No big deal. Um, we will have a 9-volt battery uh, in a holder on the PCB. So 9 volts are... You know, it's enough power to be useful, and they're pretty easy to come by, and uh, really easy if you need to replace one, since there's just one battery, it pops out, pops in, whatever. And so that's pretty standard stuff. Um, you got a 9-volt battery. It's got a switch, so you'll actually be able to turn it off without having to take the battery out or letting it wear down. I do have an indicator LED, uh, so that when the, battery, when the switch is turned on, It'll energize the LED to give off a red light. And so, you know, the LED is uh, basically just from the positive rail of the input power supply to ground through a 10K resistor to limit the current. 
so they don't you know blow up <laughs> they don't really blow up but damage uh, they do burn out so that feeds straight into um, well there's uh, in parallel with that um, LED resistor combo there's a well not super small but a little capacitor at the input um, not sure how much you really need a capacitor at the input of the voltage regulator when you start with a DC battery but um, looked around it seems to be common practice at least so why not? Um, <laughs> um, so it's about, um, I guess that one's what, 30.33 microfarads. It's a 7805 voltage regulator. Pretty common stuff. Uh, three pin device. Um, so that's the input side. Then there's ground in the output side. There's another capacitor uh, at the output. Uh, that's a 0.1 microfarad. Uh, but the output, of course, is 5 volts, and which feeds out to the rest of the circuit including providing power going out to the joystick this is device under test so let's see moving on the uh, other well it's very similar in some ways it's similar to the power indicator there's two lines for buttons to test the joystick the coco and antenna 1000 joystick port has um, uh, two buttons original ones only had one button when it was the five pin and they added uh, that six pin the center pin is another button so anyway on both of those pins uh, so the buttons work uh, if the joystick is just um, connect that pin to ground and so the te the circuit on the on the circuit board here we've got um, two LEDs each one paired with a, a 10k resistor to limit uh, to limit current so they don't burn out the anodes of the LEDs are both tied to plus five. And then the, um, the, the cathodes tied on one end of those resistors, and the other end of each resistor then ties to one of the buttons, uh, connectors, or button, button pins on the, on the joystick connector. So that's uh, what pins four and pin six. So there's two there. So you plug in the uh, joystick uh, into the tester, and uh, you know, once it's turned on, you press the buttons. Uh, so each button have its, its own light that'll come on. So you know the buttons work. So that's a, a start. It's probably not the part you were worried about, <laughs> but it's uh, always good to know that everything's working. So, all right. Well, that's um, a big chunk of the circuit, but the um, the bigger part uh, is the the X and Y axes testing. Took me a little while to think of um, what that you know when I was thinking when I was still kind of poo pooing the um, why would anybody need a joystick tester circuit. Saying, well, how would you even test that? And you know, you just you could have a light. Um, the those the X and Y axes are basically they're just uh, resistor dividers um, or voltage dividers uh, built around the um, potentiometers in the joystick. You know, if you want to go all out, you could have. Uh, well, I mean, I guess you could have a an analog voltage meter <laughs> with, with sweeping hands or something on each one. That'd be neat to look at, but. That's a little much, I think, for this. You could um, basically um, well have I don't know, like a plus and a and a and a an all the way to five volts and an all the way to ground kind of indicator, which might be wired similarly to what I've done here. But it wasn't really clear. I thought it might be nice to have some kind of barcode, but um, the barcode it would seem natural to have the barcode go from zero to five volts or whatever that would represent, but. Um, the zero position of the joystick wouldn't be at zero volts. It would be at basically at two and a half volts on each axis. 
So, you know, what do you do there? So uh, what I settled on, I've got uh, for each axis, there's uh, four LEDs, each of which is, you know, got a 10K current limiting resistor. But so what triggers them? Well, on each, well, so I've got a set of four, well, they're actually op amps, uh, but they're being used as comparators. And so... Uh, in this case, I've got quad op amp uh, package ICs. Is their TLO 84s or TL? I guess a zero TL 084. Um, it's quad, so one one chip, four op amps. Um, so they're each uh, operate independently. They share power rails, I guess. But um, so what I did just to to make it work like a uh, like a, a bar graph. Um, set them up as comparators and then fed with a um, on each axis I then set up a uh, took five 10k resistors put them all in series and so each one of those taps in between you plug the top of the series so to speak to five volts and the other one the other end all the way to ground so each tap in between gives you a fixed voltage uh, because it's uh, just a big voltage divider with those four taps in between and so that was a, the first thing was, um, you know, that'll work for, you know, a basic bar graph. And it does, but, you know, as I mentioned, the, uh, you know, the sort of the neutral position was really gives you two and a half volts, which is well, that if you do, if you wired this in the um, kind of the most obvious way, you know, you'd have, you know, one LED would come on at one, one volt and then a second LED that said the first one would stay on, the second one would come on at two volts, and then at three volts, the third one would come on, the other two would stay on, so all the way up to four volts, whatever. But in that case, you'd end up with uh, two LEDs on and two of them off, and kind of a, a um, you know a spot in the middle that doesn't really give you a great indication of where things are. Um, and maybe that's the way it ends up <laughs> anyway. But... Um, uh, I kind of thought about this and just didn't feel quite right. You, you know, I could have used an, an extra LED so there'd be like one for the middle or something like that. But, you know, I already had these quad package uh, chips for the op amps, or the comparators really. So when you wire up an op amp as a comparator, basically you feed in a, a reference voltage to the, um, the inverting input of the op amp, so the negative mark on the schematic. And then... Um, you feed in the um, the comparing, you know, the voltage you're comparing to, or that you want compared. Basically, the input voltage goes to the non-inverting input on the on the op amp. And so, if the non-inverting is greater than the inverting, then the op amp turns on and basically goes to the positive rail uh, on its output. So that's how how the comparator works. And so it turns on. If you just did that all the way down, you get kind of like I said that four-point bar graph, and which would kind of work, but it wasn't quite what I wanted. Eventually, it occurred to me that you could split between the two sides of, so that uh, on the two LEDs that represent the zero to, you know, the, to the zero to two and a half side of the range, you could invert the input or swap the inputs. So that the fixed, the, the taps from the voltage divider would go to the non-inverting inputs and then the, the input axis from the joystick, well, and those two would go to the inverting input 
And so instead of being greater than one volt, uh, you you turn it basically into a less than one volt kind of situation. And <laughs> uh, in order to turn on that, that one LED, and you know, greater, instead of greater than two volts, less than two volts. And uh, but leave the other side, the two and a half to five volt side, you know, as as it was originally, so that you end up with with four LEDs and four comparators, op amps wired as comparators. But the uh, you know the bottom of the range comes on if the input is less than one volt, and then the next one is less than two volts, but then the next one is only if it's greater than three volts. And then the last one is only if it's greater than 4 volts. So in the middle, all of the LEDs are off. And then, um, say, uh, if you're um, looking at the x-axis, if you move to the left, the um, the one LED will come on that represents less than 2 volts. And then the then uh, if you go farther to the left, you'll get... That that one will stay on, but then the one that represents less than one volt will come on. If it's centered up, they all, everything goes off, and then if you go back to the right, it'll be once you get greater than three volts, the first the one volt, the one LED right of center will come on, and then if you go farther to where it's greater than four volts, the, both LEDs right of center come on. So. I think that's a pretty good uh, version of a bar graph uh, split in the middle. Um, it makes sense to me. And if you're not quite clear uh, what I'm talking about, uh, there's a demo video available. <laughs> uh, it's available through the Facebook group. Maybe I'll include it in the show notes. Um, but anyway, I've got, uh, since the um, X and Y axes electrically are basically the same, it's just a matter of, you know, which mechanical direction you're going. I've got essentially the same circuit for um, the up and down. It works basically the same way. When I laid out the PCB, I tried to make sure that, uh, or I made sure that the four LEDs for the x-axis going to go in a, if you hold the PCB the way I expect it to be, which would, which would have all the power supply stuff at the bottom, <laughs> and then the LEDs on the, uh, on the left side are, are um, are run in a horizontal position, so representing the x-axis. That's the way the, the circuit's rotated. On the, the right side, it's basically the same circuit, but it's rotated so that the LEDs go up and down. Uh, so if the joystick, if you push up, it'll light from the top and down. It'll light down to the bottom. So something to think about when you're making a, a printed circuit board for a something with a physical aspect like this uh, so you can actually rotate the parts of the circuit to match what you want um in my prototype board the only connector i had out of experience expediency i just put down um what's well, um, a footprint for a, a single row header but basically that just just amounts to four plated through holes or five or six i guess in, in this case and in my test, I basically soldered uh, together a, a connector on a stick, so to speak, or a connector at the end of the wires, and just soldered up the wires, and I was able to test that way. Uh, when I revised the PCB, I got a more appropriate um, a footprint for a PCB mount DIN connector, and that's what I'm using. And so um, when when these when the revised boards are Assembled, they'll just have a fixed um, connector, just like uh, what's on the Coco, 
or a single joystick. It'll point out of the top of the circuit. Like I said, as long as you orient it that way, pop in the 9-volt battery, turn on the power, and then you can operate the joystick and watch the lights come on and off, uh, depending on the positions of the joystick and whether or not you're operating the buttons. Again, so perfect? Probably not. I'm not really sure what else you would do. Uh, you could probably extend out the the uh, bar graphs uh, some if you wanted to. I'm not sure how much it would be helpful. I mean, obviously it's a brand new thing. I haven't really used this in, in uh, evaluating joysticks to buy or anything like that. So maybe there's some problem with it, but um, it seems to work for me. And I don't know why it wouldn't work for, you know, well, for me or you or anyone else in the future. So... <laughs> Well, there you go. Went a little long, um, but um, there's an overview of uh, what I worked on over the Christmas break, or something, some part of what I worked on over the Christmas break. And um, now we have a, uh, a tester for joysticks. I'll probably have kits available, um, probably at uh, Cocoa Fest, maybe available uh, for ordering by mail or whatever, if you so desire. I do have a few of the uh, prototype circuit boards. Uh, if you write in some feedback and it's cool and or if you tell me that you really want one of those prototypes of uh, circuit boards or a kit or something like that, well, give me a good story and throw in some subs and tears and whatever. Maybe I'll send you a PCB, maybe even a kit if you're nice. All right, and that, of course, would be feedback, F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K at cococrew.org, C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W.org. All right, well, thanks, and thanks for listening, and of course, Coco forever. Bye. If you use OS 9 Level 2 as your Coco's primary operating system, you know its power and flexibility. Word processing, spreadsheets, program development. But what about tools that help you manage your day-to-day tasks? Help is here with Presto Partner. Presto Partner is an integrated desktop calendar, notepad, phone book, and more. Schedule important events on the calendar and be reminded of these events automatically. Quickly enter notes that are saved to disk and fully searchable. Get a hard copy of any note. Plus, you can perform decimal and hexadecimal calculations in any note. The integrated phone book allows you to quickly store names, addresses, and phone numbers. Search by any field. You can even have Presto Partner dial the number for you with a haze or haze compatible modem. Presto Partner also allows you to define macro keys that can perform up to 10 OS 9 commands. Presto Partner is a RAM resident utility. It opens in its own window. Just switch to it with the clear key anytime you need it. Just how useful is Presto Partner? Imagine you're typing a letter on your Coco when the phone rings. The call is for your spouse, but they're not home. No problem. Press clear to get to Presto Partner and alt down to create a new note. Enter the message for your spouse, then press clear to return to your letter writing. Say you're working on a program. You need to figure out the ASCII value of A multiplied by 5. Simply press the clear key to bring up Presto Partner. Press all down to open a note and type in the calculation. The result is displayed instantly in the note. While working on a spreadsheet, your Coco starts beeping and flashing red. You press clear to bring up Presto Partner and you see that your child has a dental appointment at 11.30. You need to call the school to let them know about it. So you press Alt-P to open the phone book. You look up the number and Presto Partner dials the number for you. Presto Partner is a complete desk inside your computer. Find out why so many describe Presto Partner as invaluable, a must-have, simply the most useful tool for my Coco. Presto Partner requires a 512K Coco 3 with OS 9 Level 2 and at least one disk drive. Presto Partner by Keith Alfonso, distributed by Coco Pro. Welcome back to Neil's Corner on episode 80 of the Coco Crew Podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. 
I hope you all had a wonderful holiday and a great start to the new year. I figured since we ended last year off with a Tetris-themed game when I reviewed Blockdown, that I'd start the new year off with another Tetris-themed game. This game is called Soviet Block, and it was coded in 1991 by John Strong and published under his own company called Strongware. It is a clone, but a very good clone, of the legendary Tetris Falling Blocks game. It requires a Color Computer 3 with stock 128K of memory. Disk or Coco SDC, Super IDE, or any other disk emulation device you may have. Joystick is optional. Oh, and here's the cool part. It supports the Orchestra 90 stereo sound card. So if you have one of those in an MPI, you're in for a treat. You can hear stereo sound as the pieces get louder on the left or the right, depending on the direction you move them. Because this game requires a Coco 3, the graphics and colors are super crisp and vibrant. John really took advantage of the Coco 3 color palette. This game was released right at the end of the Coco 3, when it got discontinued in 1991 by Radio Shack. However, the game is still available to buy through John at Strongware. There is also a demo version available to download from the Coco Archives website, which has a few features missing, but you can get a feel of it and see if you'd like to buy the full copy in support. John is a great guy. You can meet him in real life at Coco Fest or Tandy Assembly, as he usually attends both of those events. In fact, you can buy the game from him at one of those fests because he usually brings a few copies to sell. I believe it is $15 to purchase. I really like John. He is one of the original Coco supporters from the past and he attended Rainbow Fests back in the day. He would be more than happy chatting with you about the past or current Coco development. On a side note, he is also the go-to guy for getting Coco-related 3D printed objects done. He produces Coco SDC, ROM pack, disc controller, and serial cartridge cases along with other 3D printed cases. Well, there you have it. Another Tetris-style game for you to enjoy on your Coco 3. Go all out. Hook up your MPI and drop an Orchestra 90 in it for the full effect. Until next month, game on and happy Cocoing. Does your Coco 3 run hot? Are you using an older Model 512K RAM upgrade? Or maybe you have a 128K Coco 3 that could use more memory. The Triad 512K memory board from Cloud9 is the solution you're looking for. Named for its unique triangular shape, the Triad only draws about 22 milliamps of current. That's an amazing 95% reduction in power. Less power means less heat and less stress on your Color Computer 3. The Triad 512K memory upgrade has been in production since 2013 with more than 500 units sold. So whether you need to upgrade to 512K or want to replace an older power-hungry memory board, the Cloud9 Triad is the proven reliable 512K solution. Often copied, never duplicated. The Triad 512K upgrade from Cloud9. Cool stuff for your color computer. Visit cloud9tech.com for details. Well, it's that time again. We have reached the end of the podcast. Episode 80 is now behind us. But you can still listen again for a rewind. As usual, I'd like to thank our host, John Linville, for procuring all the news articles and providing us with stellar tech segments. Mike Rowan, for painstakingly editing the podcast each month and creating those super fun commercials. Boise Pete, our Coco historian. He remembers it, so you don't have to. Last but not least, we'd like to thank all of you who listen and support us each month. We really do appreciate it and also like hearing your feedback. Until next month, happy cocoing and retro forever. It's a blast from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco.
There's no tomorrow. What is this crazy rock and roll music anyway? It's a blast from the past. Dance, dance, dance. Let's go. 